6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Well, we're studying the epistles to the Thessalonians, and whenever we enter the Word of God, we always want to do it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your Word we thank you for bringing us each here to this opportunity. We know that in your kingdom there are no accidents. We're all here by your divine appointment. So we seek, Father, that your purpose would be accomplished in each of our lives as we open our hearts and lives to your word. And as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Amen. We're exploring the epistles to the Thessalonians. And uh, they are not only probably the earliest of Paul's epistles, there's some scholastic debate about that, but it's certainly among the earliest. Galatians in them would be the contenders. But the epistles to the Thessalonians are critical prerequisites for any serious study of the Bible, if for no other reason than they really are the eschatological epistles of the New Testament. There's more enriched material here on that subject than probably anywhere else you'll find in the Bible. So we are in 1 Thessalonians and uh, in the second chapter. 1 Thessalonians has five chapters, 2 Thessalonians has three, so it'll be a collective eight sessions for the total exploration. Now, the, uh, as I say, it's, the early, it's considered by many to be the earliest book of the uh, New Testament. And what's amazing about this, it embodies things that Paul is reminding them that he taught them already. Well, what makes that remarkable is he founded the church in Thessalonica. He was with them three weeks. He left, heard they had some troubles, and is writing this letter reminding them of what he taught them. Now, what makes that so remarkable? The content of these letters are eschatological. In the first three weeks as Christians, he taught them the, what we call the pre-trib rapture. That's astonishing. Many people regard that as sort of a graduate school subject or something. No, he taught them that in the first three weeks of their faith. So that itself should tell us something about the importance of those doctrines. Now, this initiates the New Testament. It was written less than 20 years after Christ's resurrection. So it wasn't immediately after, but still in a, in a close window here. There are some scholars who would argue that Galatians may have been written before Acts 15. That would be the other contender for the earliest, if you will. But the important thing about Thessalonians is that every chapter refers to the second coming. It's very eschatological throughout. It includes a number of things that are extremely profound, of course, we'll be dealing with. The first three chapters of the five of 1 Thessalonians are personal. The last two chapters are very practical, getting down to earth kinds of things. <laughs> That's the standard format. I would say that the fourth chapter is more than just practical. It's probably one of the most provocative doctrinal things you'll find in the scripture, but we'll get there soon enough. 1 Thessalonians, the purpose of the letter had several. It's the writer's joy 
at their steadfastness. He started this church, it's one of the earliest ones, and he's overjoyed at their steadfastness. That's good news. But he also refutes certain false charges and slanderous insinuations being circulated. I don't know why it is that you can't be in the Christian community without having somebody out there slandering you. The old-fashioned name for slander is blasphemy. But in any case, that seems to go with the territory. We shouldn't be surprised. But then he gives a response to personal attacks, assailed motives, self-seeking, cowardice, and a number of other topics we'll find very timely today. Okay? But one of the things that pervades this is his passion for the loved ones who have passed on. And he's going to deal with that. Because I should say, read his passion for the ones that are still alive, but they're concerned for the ones that have passed on. And he's going to deal with that. And that we're going to get, we'll deal with that in spades when we get to the fourth chapter. Because some of their friends that were Christians had died, and they thought they missed the rapture. So what's going on? And so he's going to deal with that. It'll lead to the famous Harpazzo passage. In the first chapter that we studied last time, the very key verse in verse 3, he said, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Uh, there's a trilogy here that echoes through the epistle to the Corinthians and the epistle to Titus. Three graces that would be featured several places. The work of faith, the patience of hope, and the labor of love. Now the work of faith, we're talking about faith versus works. Now don't let that word works throw you. There's a kind, we use the term for works where people are doing that in lieu of faith, trying to work rather than just trust Christ. That's legalism. There's another kind of works that we use that term. It would be better if we use the term fruit-bearing. You see, how many of you are saved by Christ? Can I see a show of hands? Praise God. That's exciting. What have you done with it? You see, you can't earn your salvation. Christ paid the price for that on a cross 2,000 years ago. You, you, you added nothing to that. To try to add to that is blasphemy. Okay, that's legalism to try to make your works in lieu thereof. Works... A faith plus works is, is salary. No, 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 no. No, no, it's faith alone is the point. But, so when we use the word works here in this context, we're talking about bearing fruit. If you're saved, your life should be bearing fruit for the king. That, that fruit is being accomplished by the Holy Spirit through you. It's not fruit that you can take credit for, but it is fruit that for which you'll be rewarded. And that's a big distinction that many Christians have not been uh, adequately taught. So, we're justified by faith. But faith produces works. We're reminded in Romans chapter 6 through 8, and it's hammered at home by James in his second chapter. And that's what John the Baptist even taught. And Jesus taught as James does in James 2. Your faith should be producing works. That You don't get faith by your works, but if you have faith, it will produce works. If it doesn't, there's something wrong. The labor of love. And the word here, agape, is one of the great words of the New Testament. But the labor, the word kopos, is... a Fatiguing labor to the point of weariness. I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. How many of you are, have fatiguing labor to the point of weariness in your love for the brethren? I won't ask for a show of hands, but you can repent, each one of us, okay? And patience of hope. Interesting term, the patience of hope. Patience there means steadfastness. Active constancy in the face of difficulties. Okay. It's patience inspired by hope is another way to look at that phrase. And this trilogy here, in the sight of God our Father. 
The picture here, though, is these three things, the work of faith, the labor of love, and the pains of hope, is a day of judgment issue when we all appear before God. That's not the great white throne. That's the judgment seat of Christ that's described in 2 Corinthians 5.10. All of us are facing a final exam. And the people at that, in front of that throne, that judgment seat, are all saved. But their fruit will be measured and rewarded. And that's what it's all about. That's where our work of faith, our labor of love, and our patience of hope will emerge for crowns and who knows what else. Okay, faith, hope, and love are conjoined all through the scripture. I won't take that, I won't try to unpack that in detail here. As a paradigm, though, it's interesting. Faith rests on the past. Love works in the present. And hope looks to the future. It's actually like a paradigm of a verb, isn't it? Faith rests on the past, love works in the present, hope looks... This is all review of last time, but it sets the stage for what we're getting into today. Each of these look outward. Faith looks back to a crucified Savior. Love looks up to a crowned Savior. And hope looks on to a coming Savior. People say, ask me, are you a Republican or Democrat? I'm neither. I'm a monarchist. And I'm consumed by one candidate. The coming king. And he's not coming to take sides, he's coming to take over. The church is distinguished by these three, faith, hope, and love. The ninth verse of last chapter is the one that really links to what we're going to do tonight. Last session, we were in, in chapter 1, verse 9, said, For they themselves show, a, uh, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He's talking about the effectiveness of his witness to them. Turn to God from idols. You, you can tell that the Thessalonian church was primarily a Gentile church. Turn. That means a radical change of allegiance. I've gone through that in my life. I've been a Christian for 50 years. When I was in Boy Scouts, it was God and country. You didn't have to choose between them. And we've gone through a lot of valleys in our life, a lot of pain of different kinds, but the most painful time of my life is in the last few years. When I had to set aside 30 years serving in the strategic community, things that I used to regard as patriotism, I now look upon as an obsolete form of idol worship. And that's why I realize that my allegiance, my primary allegiance, is to a coming king. And he's not number one on a list of ten. He's number one on a list of one. Now, Paul's talking about how the, the, you guys turn from idols and so forth. He's a guy that got left for dead at Lystra, at Athens, at Thessalonica. Remember that Olympus, the Mount of the Gods in the Greek culture, was only 50 miles south of their city. Turn from idols. What is an idol? It's not a, a figurine that you bow down before. No, 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 no. It's anything that gets between you and the living God. Any substitute. It can be a golf club. It can be, you fill in the blank, anything that distracts you from a commitment to the living God. What are yours? What are your idols? Your work? Your career? For many. Your sports? The country? Think about that. He says, serve and then wait. See, to serve as a slave, the living and active and true, real, genuine God. Beginning a new life of service. Every idolater is a prisoner held in humiliating bondage. 
And remember, the scripture says several places, we become like the gods we worship. Take a good look at the gods you worship and realize you will become like them. Now we'll go through that again this time. Salvation does not begin with giving up something, but with receiving someone. Prophetic hope. That's going to come up all through this epistle. That drive, should drive you toward personal holiness and evangelism. If you're not being driven towards personal holiness and you're not being drawn into evangelism, you haven't been listening. You haven't been absorbing what Paul is going to hammer home for the next few chapters. So, okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight, first 12 verses are an elaboration of that last verse we just looked at. What manner of entering in we had unto you? Why? Paul's going to explain why and how he preached, and it'll surprise you. There are some aspects that you may find uh, surprising. Then from verses 13 to 16, how ye turned unto God from idols to serve a living and true God. By doing three things, by hearing, by listening, those aren't the same thing, and doing. Okay. To wait for a son from heaven does not mean to sit down. It means to be busy for the Lord. It's a patience of hope. It means keep on serving the Lord, giving out the word of God while you wait. So waiting is not an inactive stance. It's an active verb. It's a transitive verb. It has an object. The coming of Christ to take his church out of the world is not an escape mechanism. Rather, it is an incentive to serve him and to give out the word of God. So even so, come Lord Jesus, as Revelation concludes. You know, many people accuse the pre-trib types of sitting with their feet on the desk. They haven't looked around at the true ones. The real ones recognize that he's coming soon, and that gives us a limited window in which to get our report cards improved. So obviously we want him. We'd love it if he comes tomorrow. But if he doesn't, goody, we got a whole other day to get something done for him. Praise God for that. The coming of Christ for his church is called the rapture, the harpazo of the church. Well, rapture is not in the Bible. Yes, it is if you have a Latin Bible. It's a, it's a Latinized version anyway. It's not a doctrine to argue about. It's a doctrine to live. Unfortunately, there are many who believe Christ is coming after the Great Tribulation. It's our view that they haven't redone their homework. We'll deal with that on another occasion. There are those who believe he is coming before, and some who believe he's coming during that period of time. Then there are others who don't believe that he's coming at all, and yet they say they trust him as their savior. A little discontinuity for me. But for all the groups, there is one important question. Because I don't know, I'm not going to ask you of hands of which ones have that view. There's one question I will ask you. How does your interpretation affect your life? That's the key question. Does it do anything for you? Is you? If your view has no effect on your life, then you should reconsider what you believe. The expectation of the return of the Lord should be the motivating factor in the life of the believer. Not a motivating factor, the motivating factor. That's what should be driving us. If not, we're not paying attention. If you really believe it, it should be generating shoe leather. The first 12 verses of chapter 2 are an elaboration of that passage from the last time, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. What manner of entering in we had unto you, why and how he preached. 
And then that's the first half. Then the last half of this chapter will be verses 13 to 16. How ye turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, hearing, listening, and doing. But now before we get into the, uh, the, the text piece by piece, let's review the whole thing and get a flow of it. Uh, let's read the entire passage right on through here. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witness, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are we not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy." At this point, let's go through and try to unpack those passages. Paul says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance unto you, that it was not in vain. Praise God for that. What do you mean by that? Because it was service. It was a vital living for God. They were not guilty of a superficial religion. Missionary's conduct. That's the way a Christian should act. Did you realize each one of us is a missionary? We're being watched all the time. Paul had stopped by in Thessalonica. The reason he stopped there was the, the church was there because he stopped there. He founded it. Paul visited other places that he wasn't necessarily the founder of. This one is one he, he himself started. 
Paul was there only three weeks, but that was long enough to start a riot. <laughs> okay? Now, how did he do this? It was a successful startup. How did he do this? Boy, what a sermon he must have preached, huh? Well, we'll look at that in a minute. Verse 2. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. At Philippi, they were really beat up, insulted, but thrown in prison and all that. Some people say that's called market research. They should have modified their message maybe a little bit. Not Paul. <laughs> okay. The insult in Philippi did not close Paul's mouth. Think about that a minute. How many of us might have had that kind of experience that, gee, maybe we ought to be a little more cautious or something? But it had precisely the opposite effect in our God. And it was not wild fanaticism, but determined courage and confidence in God that spurred Paul to still greater boldness in Thessalonica. Okay? From Philippi to Thessalonica. We were bold in our God. Had just the opposite effect that people thought it maybe. And more than bodily suffering, it was the personal indignity that had been offered to him as a Roman citizen. You might want to reread Acts 16, where it has that whole episode. They finally found out he was a Roman citizen. They were panicked. They tried to get him out there. He wouldn't leave. <laughs> that got him even more panicked. He's a Roman citizen. You know, it's interesting to see how Acts and the epistles throw light on each other. We understand the epistles when we really put them in the context of the book of Acts. And the conditions of the book of Acts illuminate the epistles. So you want to read those always together. Luke tells us how Paul resented the treatment according to him as a Roman citizen. And Paul here shows that the memory still rankled his in his bosom. Not the suffering, but the indignant. He was a Roman citizen, and they were not entitled to do what they did to him. They didn't realize that this Jew was a Roman citizen. That was an unusual thing from a very distinguished family and all that sort of stuff. So he was preaching boldness in conflict. You know, the word, eparasisiasamatha, <laughs> Uh, that's the Greek term for superfragilistic expialidocious, I suppose. I don't know, that has 12 cells, well, this one only has 8, so they're not even getting warmed up yet. But what it really means is speaking out publicly, making a public declaration, boldness and conflict. By the way, do you realize secret believers do not lead souls to Christ? Often to many audiences, I think, I, I compliment the audience because I think they're probably the most, uh, most uh, amazing undercover Christians in the nation. Their family members, the people at work, never suspect you're a Christian. If you're on trial for being a Christian, there would not be enough evidence to convict you. No, secret Christians do not lead souls to Christ. So that's a, something to consider. Now, and now the Roman flogging they had, though, was no light matter. They were arrested on false charge, stripped of their clothes, publicly beaten without a trial, thrown into prison with their feet in stocks. That was all against the Roman law. And when they found it was a Roman citizen they'd done it to, they panicked. They panicked. So he had a sit-down strike. If any of Paul's opponents charged that Paul had a police record, he would have been quite willing to have the facts known. They were quite anxious to have him covered up. It was not Paul, but the magistrates who had reason to hide the truth. He arrived in Thessalonica still bleeding, and that's the picture you have as he writes this letter. In there he speaks of contention. The word is agonized. It's an athletic term. It's conscious, an arena, struggle, a battle. This doesn't imply that he was tactless or devoid of common sense. It means just strictly that there was a, it was a contested situation. And they had courage in spite of the persecution. 
And uh, Christian courage springs from the knowledge that God is our God. God is raising sons, not vegetables. That's sort of the point, as I might summarize it. You think Paul was ever careful? When a Christian starts being careful in serving the Lord, the power goes out of his message. Never does the Holy Spirit lead one to pussyfoot around. That's the Missler Gospel. So, Check the scripture and see if that is what you read. But that's what I see. And I think that uh, doesn't mean you're obnoxious, but you are bold. You have courage, steadfast. And you don't tiptoe. You don't do market research to see what kind of a message is going to be acceptable this Sunday. That's pussyfooting around. What was Paul's greatest sermon? Interesting question on an exam, wouldn't it? What's Paul's greatest sermon? At Damascus after his conversion, there's a possibility. After Sergius Paulus and the Isle of Cyprus was another big event. At the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, that was another major event. At Mars Hill, Athens, boy, that's a much celebrated talk there. The school of Tyrannus in Ephesus for several years. His defense at Corinth was another conspicuous example. His arrest in Jerusalem caused a riot. The Romans had to rescue him to save his life. Then before Felix and before Festus and before Agrippa. There are ten occasions that Paul gave sermons. Which one is his greatest one? None of these. What was his greatest sermon? That'll be an exam question. His life in Thessalonica. His life in Thessalonica was his most important sermon. Wasn't what he said, it's who he was. Paul's going to tell us about the sermon he preached at Thessalonica in the next few verses. And then he described the relationship he had with the Thessalonians. One of the things we're trying to do in the Institute is really emphasize relationships, not doctrine. Yes, we want to be pure in our doctrine, but that's not going to save people alone. It's relationships. That's what discipleship is all about, relationships. And he's going to be like a mother to them, that he comforted them in verse 7. He's going to be like a father to them in that he charged them in verse 11. And he's going to be like a brother to the Thessalonians in that he challenged them. So there's three different aspects to the relationship. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music